Well, good morning to you. Now, we must remember that when we're reading the Bible, especially a letter uh, or a sermon format like the book of Hebrews, that it was written by a real person who arranged it in a way that was logical to him from start to finish. And remember, it was also read to its original audience in one sitting. So we've separated sections because there's a lot to draw from each verse, but the drawback is we lose some context because we have week-long breaks between each section. Now, it would be nuts to parachute into the middle of chapter 12 without reviewing what came before it. Just like it would also be nuts for me to flip over and read to you this without context. He put the guy in a chokehold and demanded his money back. We'll get to that later. So let's refresh. Please don't tune out because our passage cannot be understood rightly without the appropriate gospel framework. Look back up at chapter 12, verse 1. It begins with, therefore, but let's start with the command. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that is what the entire chapter 12 is about. Enduring in your faith, um, keep going. But how do we endure in the race? We need a solid foundation to endure. Verse 2, look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We can endure because Jesus first endured on our behalf. He never quit all the way to the cross. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remind yourself of Jesus's endurance even through sinners' hostility to him so that you could be encouraged to keep on enduring hostility of your own. Verse 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now, this is a wooden translation, as Pastor Troy mentioned last week, but essentially, your endurance proves that you are God's children. So, in our verses this morning, the word endure is not actually present. But in verses 12 and 13, the author, in a poetic way, communicates the same thing. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's taking us back to the racetrack again with the same imagery from verse 1. I know you're tired, but lift up those heavy legs and keep moving. Taking a rest is tempting, but keep going. Stay in the race. The point is repeated in our section, endure. So we must continue in our faith. And that is a command. In verses 12 through 17, which is our passage, the author specifies how we are to endure. What a faithful life of endurance looks like. So depending on your count, there are five, six, or seven separate exhortations in our passage this morning. But 
there is no gospel foundation in our passage, and that's where we can run into trouble if we swoop in and swoop out without reflecting on the context. We can read the passage. We can notice all of the commands and think, I need to try harder, and I need to do better. I need to quit doing that. All right, Lord, let's have a good day today. Amen. But that's not the gospel. That's every other religion in the world, but that is not biblical Christianity. But here's the beauty of the Bible. Chapter 12, verse 12, begins with the word, therefore. So every time you see therefore, you should ask the question, what is it there for? So if you're following along on your outline, number one is simply therefore. This is a connecting word, and this is our first clue that our passage connects back to something that was previously said and is built on top of what the author has written before. He wants us to read our passage today uh, considering what he just wrote. The Lord lovingly disciplines those who are his children. Look back up at verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You are truly a son if you receive the Father's discipline. His discipline is an expression of his love. Verse 8 makes the opposite point. If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. As Pastor Troy said last week, God's discipline confirms that you are in His family. It's a good sign if you're being disciplined by God. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time and to, their, to the best of their ability, not perfectly, but look at verse 10. He disciplines us for our good. Well, how is it for our good? That purpose statement we may share in His holiness. God's discipline sanctifies us, conforming us more into the perfect image of Jesus, making us more righteous, verse 11 says. So what's it there for? To remind us of the context of God's discipline for His children. I summarize all of that by putting in your outline, sorry, my face itched right by my microphone. I summarize all that in your outline based upon God's fatherly and helpful discipline. Now let's review the new commands in our passage with a reminder of the context. So based upon God's fatherly and helpful discipline, therefore, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Based upon God's fatherly and helpful discipline. Therefore, verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. Don't wander, but fix your eyes straight ahead. Based upon God's loving and helpful discipline. Therefore, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Strive, pursue, make every effort to be holy and at peace based upon God's fatherly and sanctifying discipline. 
Therefore, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and defiles. And finally, based upon God's fatherly and helpful discipline, therefore, 16, don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. John Piper has really helped me understand all of this, but here's the part that really encouraged my soul. Let's put the context and our new verses together. In our passage today, we are not being commanded to endure and pursue holiness on our own. No, we are commanded to join God in something He is already doing. He's already pursuing our holiness through His fatherly and loving discipline. So considering these commands in 12 through 17, God is committed to doing that in you. He's just telling you to join Him by trusting in Jesus' endurance, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His powerful resurrection over sin, you have been adopted into God's family, and now your Father is disciplining you through various trials, persecutions, and sufferings for your own growth in holiness. So the question is, are you going to join Him in what He is already committed to do in you by enduring in your race. And now, this is what endurance looks like based upon God's fatherly and helpful discipline. Believers should, number two, keep running your race of faith. Verse 12, therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm reminded that the author wrote to a group of Jewish Christians and he was a Jew himself who had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament. This symbolic language comes straight from the Old Testament. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Isaiah 35. Make straight paths for your feet. Proverbs chapter 4. The reference in verse 12 tells us that these believers who received this letter were exhausted. Their hands were drooping and their knees were weak. A similar emphasis on spiritual exhaustion is also in verse 3 of chapter 12. Remember Jesus so that, purpose statement, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And sandwiched right between verse 3 and verse 12 is the teaching on God's discipline. What the believers are feeling and experiencing is persecution and suffering, but consider the heavenly perspective, is what the author is saying. God is my Father, and He is doing something helpful for me in eternity, so be encouraged in your spirit. 
I mentioned Isaiah chapter 35, referenced in verse 12. The author there prophesies everlasting joy to God's people who are not currently experiencing joy. They are exiled from their own land. God will personally, the author says, come and punish those who are burdening his people and save those who are his. So here, be encouraged, O weary ones. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Endure just a little bit longer because God is going to come and he's going to rescue you. On this Mother's Day, there could be many among us with drooping hands and weak knees. You're discouraged and you're tired. So to the moms up for hours during the night, lift your drooping hands. To the moms trying to keep up with your toddlers, lift your drooping hands. To the moms who've put so much time and energy in, but now whose children are estranged in some way, lift your drooping hands. To those waiting and to those longing for motherhood, lift your drooping hands. To those who have physically lost a child, lift your drooping hands because God loves you. Many in your family and many in this church are so thankful for you. Lift what's drooping and weak so that you can keep going. But it's a lot easier to keep running your race on a level path. At the end of Proverbs chapter 4, a father is exhorting his son to follow the road of wisdom rather than the path of foolishness. If the hearers choose the wrong path, their spiritual condition will get worse. Because running a race on uneven um, ground full of bumps and potholes is not only inconvenient, but it is dangerous as well. Pick up your feet, the author is saying, and run on the straight path. Follow the Lord in holy living. I'm reminded what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. This could apply to every sin, not just immorality. If sin is over there, don't dance around the line, but run in the opposite direction. Don't use the device at night when no one is around. Don't give an ear to gossip. Have someone else do your taxes if you're tempted to fudge. If you quit feeding the evil root, the sinful fruit will wither and die. But you must take the straight path. Because if you take the rocky road, you will inevitably twist your ankle and fall down. These two outcomes are found in verse 13. What is lame will either be put out of joint, your spiritual condition will get worse, or rather, it'll be healed. You will, go, you will grow in greater holiness like Jesus. Someone explained it to me this way. Every day, we make a plethora of choices. Some of them, whether during times of temptation or otherwise, involve choosing between a way of sin and a way of holiness. It's a fork in the road, and you have a decision to make. 
Well, if you have a sinful habit or tendency, when an opportunity for that sin arises, it may be more natural to go the sinful way because of your habits. Now, if we're thinking about a hiking trail, the way of sin may be a well-worn path because of the number of times that you have walked it. You hate going that way. So I tell you today, if you are a believer, you don't have to go that way anymore. No matter how many times you've gone it, if you trust in Jesus' endurance to withstand sin, He withstood sin even to the point of death. You have the Spirit of God in you, so you have the power and you have the ability to go the way of holiness no matter your sinful habits. Even if that path is overgrown due to lack of use. But if you commit to walking that way, if you commit to taking the fork toward holiness, you, and you seek the Lord and rely on His help, that path can become your default. You aren't stuck in your old life if Jesus has made you a new creation. And the theme of holiness continues in the next verse, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Remember that the Lord is working on your behalf and He's needing us to join in the work. That's what He's commanding us to do. So the author, with this verse, begins to specify what enduring in our race looks like. And here, it is striving or making every effort, or pursuing. And that action verb in this verse should be supplied to two things. Strive for peace with everyone, and strive for holiness. So let's start with holiness. It is your responsibility to fight and grow and run toward holiness in conjunction with what the Lord is already working in you. Holiness is the perfect character of God. Each of us should be becoming more like that godly character the longer we are Christians. It says in verse 14 that without it, without holiness, you will not see or have fellowship with the Lord on the last day. Holiness is not perfection, but it is continuing to run toward Jesus. Only those who are pursuing the Lord will see the Lord because, really, if you don't have enough of a desire to keep in the race, you're not going to see the Lord at the finish line. Holiness is required for an authentic Christian life. Without holiness, there's no assurance now, and there's no fellowship with the Lord then. So again... This goes back to choosing the straight path and actually running. This is the straight path that leads to life. Pursuing holiness and peace with everyone. I think the author puts these two commands together because you can't have one without the other. Strive for peace. You can have peace with others out of the overflow of the peace that you have with God. Look back at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peace is the fruit or the result of righteousness, which is a gift from God when you trust in Jesus to save you from your sins. Your biggest problems are not out here. It is actually here. So when you have peace with this vertical relationship, you can have peace horizontally with everyone around you. So for example, you do not have to get the last word in the argument that you're in. You don't need to keep bringing up the baggage of others from the past because your baggage has been wiped clean. And God has the last word on you. Righteous in Jesus. Seek peace with others out of the overflow of the peace that you have been given by God. Now remember the parable in Matthew chapter 18? Um, A servant owed an enormous, incalculable debt to his king. Yet when he begged the king, he had mercy on him and forgave all of it. But that servant left the king's court and found a guy who owed him money. He put the guy in a chokehold and demanded his money back. The man fell down begging, but the servant threw him in prison until he could pay all that he owed. Well, then the king found out, and he put the full debt back on his servant, and he threw him in prison where he was going to stay for the rest of his life because the debt was so big it could never be repaid. All because the servant couldn't make peace with his fellow man who owed him what was like the cost of a stick of gum in comparison to what he owed the king. Now before we move on, let me emphasize one more thing. Some of you have unlaced your cleats, put your hands around your head, and are acting like you're on your cool down. Or you've put down your paddle, pulled your hat down over your eyes to coast in your boat. I hate to tell you, but just drifting along isn't living the Christian life. No one ever drifts toward Jesus. If you quit running toward Christ, if you quit pursuing holiness, if you quit pursuing peace, your life, your old life is all upon you to take advantage because it's still inside of you. That's why it says, strive, make every effort, and pursue. Work at it, and don't drift. So you need to keep running your race of faith, but your responsibility is also number three. Help others keep running their race of faith. As you run, keep your arms out to help those who are falling behind and keep your arms out so other people can help you. I get this community aspect from verse 15. Just like in verse 14 where strive is supplied to the first and the second half of the verse, the same applies here for the verb see to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many 
become defiled. Now this is a sobering verse. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about failing to obtain God's grace and becoming defiled. Your fellow believers are your responsibility. There are some of you, I think, who after this service need to walk over to a fellow man or fellow woman and invite them to -to face-to-face meetings just to read and pray. Texts need to go out. Calls need to be made today. More follow-up needs to happen. More connection and more support. And on the flip side, some of you need to make better decisions because you've already been approached and have resisted an invitation. If you're a maturing Christian and you're running well, Jesus would not share that opinion if you're running alone. How many of you should be mentoring someone else but aren't? How many of you should be volunteering in the kids' ministry but aren't? How many should be leading a life group but aren't? As Pastor Troy would say, every member a minister. So I was hired to help and facilitate you to do ministry, not to do ministry on your behalf. And the same is true for all the staff, leaders, and volunteers that are in place. They are serving and doing their ministry, but are you doing yours? Are you linked with even one fellow believer outside of your family? Every one of us needs our arms out. One, to hold on tight to someone so they don't fall behind. And one, to hold on tight to someone else so you don't fall behind. In the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Derek Redmond of Great Britain competed in the 400-meter race. He was running in good form. He even posted the fastest time in the first round. He won his quarterfinal. He was viewed as a threat for the podium, but he did not win a medal. Partway through the race, his hamstring tore. He fell to the ground in pain as all the other runners passed him by. Derek waved off a stretcher, though. He decided he wanted to finish the race. So he got up, he hobbled around the track, but suddenly an older man appeared out of nowhere in a t-shirt and a ball cap and ran along with Derek. He raced from the stands, literally evaded security, and began supporting Derek. It was Jim Redman, Derek's father. Arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder, his father supported the weight of his son that his own leg could no longer support. Together they stayed in Derek's lane all the way to the finish. They crossed together, the crowd of 65,000 rose to their feet, giving a standing ovation. Derek Redmond, 92 Summer Olympic Games, go watch that on YouTube. That illustrates perfectly what Morgan said to me so well this week. Move forward together and leave no one behind. Because left on our own, we are more vulnerable. If our knees get weak from suffering, no one is there to hold on to us and keep us moving. 
On your own, you're more likely to quit running and thereby fail to attain the grace of God, falling short of it. Morgan also pointed out to me the similarity of the wording to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest, which is everlasting life with God, still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Look over at verse 11. Let us therefore strive, the same word from our passage, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author keeps making the same point. Unless we run, and unless we run together, we will fail to attain God's rest. Look back one more page to Hebrews chapter 3. 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away, i.e. quit running, toward the, un- toward the living God. And here's our responsibility. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And here's some theology. For we have come to share in Christ. If, indeed, we hold on to our original confidence firm to the end. If you have trusted in Jesus and have been given His righteousness, you will not fail to obtain the grace of God. But these warnings and our fellow believers locking arms with us are part of God's mechanism to keep us from failing to obtain His grace. Morgan also said, so essentially, Morgan Wilde helped me with this entire section. Um, He is so wise. I don't know where he is. You should go talk to him. Um, He said, don't let anyone be a rotten apple. Just one among us left to himself or herself in an area of sin can negatively affect all of us. Chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This bitterness is literal, and it is contagious. It smears on everyone around a bitter person, defiling many. Do you remember the story of Rachel and Leah? Rachel experienced great love from her husband. Leah had many children, and yet both wanted what the other sister had. They both had blessings and sorrows. Rather than supporting each other through their sorrows and rejoicing together through their blessings, what separated and defiled them? Bitterness. Bitter words and behaviors are the fruit but it's produced from the root of bitterness, actually referenced back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, 18 and 19. You would think that this section of Deuteronomy would have to do uh, with gossip or slandering others. Actually, it's a warning. Do not go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, 
lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. A bitter and poisonous root is a person who has rejected God's covenant of grace out of unbelief in their heart. And these verses show, verse 19 would go on to say, out of their pride and stubbornness, they think they are safe from judgment, even though they rejected God and worshiped idols. One pastor put it this way, rebellion grows in the soil of unbelief, and the fruit is bitter, and it is contagious. So people who turn from the Lord often contaminate those around them. And the concern is on the mind of the author of Hebrews here. Even one rotten apple who chooses to quit running the race will bring others to a screeching halt as well. So to close this section, the author turns to Esau, the rotten apple. 12.16 See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Few know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So number four, avoid repeating Esau's example. He quit running. Unlike the examples of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, Esau stands out as one who quit his race only part of the way through. Esau, the grandson of Abraham. God made a covenant, you remember, with Abraham. He promised to make Abraham's name great, to give him a land and future generations of children through those generations that God would bless the entire world. Now, from our New Testament perspective, we know that this blessing that God promised to Abraham was Jesus, a specific person. Uh, through Jesus, the blessing of God is available to all people. An everlasting relationship with your Creator by the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. But back in Abraham's time, the family line was still being brought about. Abraham passed the covenant blessing onto his son Isaac. And then Isaac would pass the covenant blessing to his eldest son Esau. But God made uh, Rebekah, his mother, a, a promise or a prophecy um, that she was having twins and the blessing would not flow to Esau but the younger son Jacob instead. Now this was God's sovereign will to continue the covenant through the younger and not the older. But we can read the narrative and know that Esau was not without blame. Look at Genesis 25. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. <clears throat> Esau, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Well, Jacob, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose. He went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Esau traded covenantal blessings from God for one meal. Everlasting blessings and prosperity for relief from hunger pangs just for a few hours. How short-sighted, how undisciplined, how foolish, we may say. But Jacob tricked him. Well, the key verse is our last one. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. He did not value it enough to begin with, so he was susceptible to trickery when physical discomfort arose. The original audience could be feeling like Esau during their persecutions when Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is the birthright to me? I could just quit running, even for just a few minutes. My legs are so heavy under this suffering. What if I ventured off the straight path just for a little bit? I'll come right back. Don't be tricked. An easier life is not always a better one. And Esau realized that too. He got hungry again, and he could look over at the prosperity of his brother, and he saw his foolish mistake. Genesis 27:38. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. In summary, Hebrews 12:17 says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau sought it, uh, the blessing, with tears, but he had to live with the consequences of the choices that he already made. It was too, it was too late. The blessing was no longer his. I don't think repentance was possible for him anymore. Now, yes, God could save him. God could save anyone, no matter who they are and what they've done. But His grace is greater. But from the human perspective, <clears throat> a person can wade too deep, a heart maybe too soaked, where it's no longer possible to turn from their own sinful ways. So we must treasure the most important thing. Unlike Esau, we must keep running the race. We must stay in the faith. We must keep following Jesus. Our context is much different, I think, than the original audience. They were being persecuted for their association with Jesus. But for us, rather than persecution, our allegiance to Jesus is writhing under the pressure of travel ball retirement funding, political influence. If we don't treasure Jesus as the most important thing, we won't finish the race because we will settle for less. Jesus himself put it this way in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Apparently, a bowl of soup. What a bad trade. 
So we must set our eyes together on Jesus, who was the exact opposite of Esau. He did not budge even one inch uh, for any short-term gain or relief as he was tempted for 40 days in the desert without food by the devil himself. One temptation involved pressuring Jesus to reject the hard life God had planned for him by instead quickly submitting to Satan and receiving all the glory and all the honor from the kingdoms of the world. So would Jesus take the short and easy way to glory? Or would he get glory from his Father's way through the cross? Jesus resisted the attack. Satan fled from him, but Satan still uses the same strategy to tempt us. Are you going to fulfill a desire that you have, even a good desire, in a way that God has declared sinful? One time leads to two, because nothing sinful and easy can ever satisfy the heart that God has given you. Now, it won't be long before everything I've said will be forgotten. And yet, the command will remain. Endure. Keep running. Follow Jesus. Only until you see Jesus face to face will that command not apply to you any longer. So then, until then, do not be like Esau. Lock arms with your brothers and sisters and let's finish the race together. Do not reject God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded how strong and compassionate, steady, consistent, our Savior was. Thank you for Jesus who could have chosen an easier path, but he endured even through hostility from sinners, never sinning all the way to his death on the cross. So we look to him now and we pray that we would be like him. Through the power of the Spirit, we pray, help us to endure together. Please, Lord, may we not be like Esau who traded away something so everlasting and so satisfying for something so cheap. Help us be like Jesus instead. In his name we pray. Amen.